The final investigator I met with was Dr. Roberto Healy, who began our conversation by commenting on his research interest in the field. One specific line of research that I'm interested in actually to try to understand potential mechanisms that are underlying the resistant mechanisms to the anti-VGF therapies like sunidinib, sorafenib, or bevacizumab. We'll be doing a lot of studies actually in, in animals and implanting renal cell carcinoma, whether it's a mouse tumor in the mouse or human tumors in the mouse. We inoculate this tumor under the capsule, the kidney, this tumor grows and eventually metastasize to the lungs. So it's a really good model to look at the biology of kidney cancer and how these drugs actually can affect the growth of the tumor. What we've been observing, and actually even in the mice, like other group actually have been now showing that we can induce response, but eventually this tumor becomes resistant. And one line of research that I'm trying to develop is how we can either delay or in some way affect this resistant mechanism, whether we can combine these drugs together, we can sequence these drugs, or we can use a novel agent like histone deacetylase inhibitors. And this histone deacetylase inhibitors, HTAC inhibitors, are actually a novel class of agent that targets specific enzymes called histone deacetylases. These enzymes, what they do actually affect the chromatin status, how our DNA is wrapped around the histone, these proteins. And if these enzymes are present, actually the chromatin is packed, and what does a line to is that we have repression of genes. And this is one mechanism actually to how tumor cells can silence some good genes and eventually express some bad genes. And there is one agent actually has been approved, Voninostat, for a treatment cutaneous cell lymphoma. This is the first HTAC and it was approved, but there are others in development. And just briefly, we tried to develop this agent, particularly in kidney cancer. We believe that this novel class of agent actually particularly suitable for being tested in kidney cancer because we and another shown that this agent can induce degradation of the epoxia-inducible factor alpha. This is a key regulator of androgenesis, and downstream can lead to production of vascular endothelial growth factor. This is, as you will aware, is the key pathway in kidney cancer. And we believe these drugs can affect this pathway in a significant way. So we have been testing this combination with anti-VGF therapy in mice. We actually have a clinical trials ongoing and phase two setting combined vorinostat with bevacizumab. This is an NCI-sponsored trial. And the idea is in the specific trial to achieve what we call a vertical inhibition of the VGA pathway and try to achieve or delay the time where this resistance may occur. Could you maybe sort of take a step back for those of us who are not too familiar with all the pathways involved and talk a little bit about, you know, sort of the basic, what the pathways are, what's different about renal cell cancer, and how do the various drugs, including HDAC inhibitors, interfere with the specific pathways? Sure. Well, the pathway that has been particularly the center of investigation and is 
been the target for drug development in kidney cancer is the VGFAT or the vascular growth factor. And the reason is that in the majority of clear cell carcinoma, who is the main histological type of kidney cancer, the tumor cell carries actually a, a genetic or epigenetic silencing of the phonipolindau genes. So this is key tumor suppressor genes that in kidney cancer is silenced. And in these genes that lead to a production of protein, that in the presence of this protein, the apoxia-inducible factor, this transcriptional factor, is actually degraded. So if we don't have a protein, if one alpha is overexpressed, and downstream this transcriptional factor can lead to activation of other genes, including the vascular growth factors. And we know that VGF is the main culprit for tumor angiogenesis. And that's also speaks for the clinical observation that kidney cancer is particularly a vascularized tumor, like, for example, brain tumor. So targeting the VGA pathway, either by affecting the HIF-1-alpha upstream or the production of VGF, we can neutralize the VGF with the ligands, with the bevacizumab, monoclonal antibody, or VGF-trap, a soluble decoy receptor, or affecting the signaling at the receptor level with the small molecules like a sorafenesterism. All this intervention, including the inhibition of F1-alpha upstream with HTAC inhibitors or mTOR inhibitors, can lead to what we call a vertical inhibition and we believe a greater anti-tumor effect and anti-angiogenic effect. The other pathway that I want to just mention is the mTOR pathway. As you know, this is a survival pathway that has been shown to be important, not just in kidney cancer, but also in other cancer. And the development of drugs that may particularly affect in this pathway has shown clinical activity in kidney cancer. First of all, tensorolimus in a specific patient population, primarily in poor performance status patient, but now we have RAT001, that in second-line setting after tyrosine kinase inhibitors has shown to have a clinical activity confirming the importance of the mTOR pathway inhibition of a potential therapeutic option in patients with kidney cancer. Where are we in identifying predictors of response to these various agents? In terms of our capability to really observe a tumor response or how we can effectively assess tumor response with these agents. In terms of trying to predict who's going to clinically respond to these agents? Uh, these are very good questions. I don't think we don't have right now an answer. Level of VGF or VHL status, unfortunately, does not seem to predict actually who are the patient who may be uh, best candidate to respond to this type of therapies. There was some intriguing data from a memorial solo candidate that was presented last year at ASCO suggested that in patients where in the primary tumor there was an overexpression of F1-alpha, maybe those patients had a high chance actually to respond to sunidib therapy. I think this is an intriguing data. Most prospective trials needs to be eventually conducted. But still, this remains an issue with these molecular target therapies, how we can optimize and select patients that might benefit the most. Let's talk a little bit about the case that you submitted here, the 68-year-old man. This probably is a very, I would say, classical presentation for kidney cancer a patient in the mid-60s who had a prior nephrectomy and with a really large tumor with the clear cell histology that eventually, approximately one year later, developed evidence of metastasis in the lymph nodes. 
And this is a patient that presented with a good performance status, with good laboratory values. There is no anemia, there is no hypercalcemia. So this is a patient that we consider with good prognostic features. How was the metastasis actually detected? This was by imaging with the CAT scan. So it's just a routine follow-up CAT scan? This is a routine follow-up. Per NCCN guidelines, the recommendation to perform a scan every six months. And where exactly was tumor seen? It was primarily seen in the metastinum and in the retroperitoneal area. This is a classical size of eventually relapse disease. Were you able to get any tissue to confirm it? No. This is a good question whether or not we should document that relapse of metastatic disease with the tissue biopsy. In general, we don't recommend to do a biopsy unless there is a doubt that lesion may be indeed a sign of disease. So this man was presenting... This was one year after the original nephrectomy. One year, right. And did he have any symptoms? No symptoms. This is a patient that eventually was discovered to have relapsed disease just on the routine scans. So what were the alternatives that you know you considered in that situation? I think this patient could have considered a different option, although if we look at the NCCA guidelines for patients with uh, newly discovered metastatic disease and no prior therapies of the Category 1 evidence, meaning with randomized trials, evidence, I would say that treatment with sunidinib, one of the tyrosine canesimidum, would be the recommended treatment in this setting. His age probably would not making the best candidate for high-dose interleukin-2. In general, we recommend this treatment in young patient with excellent performance status and good lung function and cardiac functions. So what happened? It's been treated with the sunidinib. This is really a relatively common observation with sunidinib patient Tolerably well, he did not need a dose reduction, but eventually after 12 months, he has initial responses that did not reach a partial response, but eventually after 12 months, has progressive disease in the same size. And so the lymph nodes start growing again. This is really pretty much match the data from the randomized phase 3 trial published by Dr. Mozart showing a progression-free survival at approximately 11 months in this patient population. So he had no problems at all with the sunitinib? But he did have the classical side effect, I would say. The fatigue is very common. Gastrointestinal symptoms with diarrhea. He did not have hypertension, that sometimes we do see in this patient. He did not have a bone marrow suppression like leukopenia. Primarily, the, the two main side effects was fatigue and gastrointestinal syndromes. No hand foot syndrome in this case. Any speculation on the mechanism of the fatigue? This is a good question. There are some evidence that maybe patient may develop hypothyroidism. So in this patient, and this has generally been seen also with other small molecules, so tyrosine canestrium, it's not just for the VGF receptor tyrosine canestrium, this patient can develop subclinical or clinical hypothyroidism. So it's always recommended, especially if patient does develop symptoms like fatigue, to check thyroid hormones. In this case, they are normal. For those who are normal thyroid function, again, any thoughts about why the fatigue occurs? There is no clear understanding about, I mean, the fatigue that we observe with these small molecules, we do see observe 
without an agent, including, for example, the eastern deacetylase inhibitors. And whether this is related to cytokines release or some effect on the brain is still unclear. If the fatigue is related to the apothyroidism, that can be most of the time successfully treated. I was just thinking, actually, I interviewed one of your colleagues, Dr. Gore, for our hematologic oncology series, and he was talking about HDAC inhibitors and MDS. Is there some particular interest in HDAC inhibitors at Hopkins? Yes. One of the first HDAC inhibitors that actually was developed was phenobutyrate. And Mike Carducci, Dr. Carducci, who's leading the phase one program, actually was one of the first pioneering this agent in the early drug development. Eventually, this phenobutyrate that is also has other activity beside HDAC inhibition was clinically not a druggable agent eventually to further develop. But we, both in the solid tumor and the hematological malignancy field, that we've been very interested to develop this agent as a single agent or in combination strategies, particularly, I would say, in the GEO program and the hematological malignancies program. So let's get back to this patient. So he had progressive disease on sunitinib. What were the options you considered at that point? Once a patient progresses on sunitinib, if you look even at the NCCN guidelines, there is no Category 1 recommendation in this patient. Approach probably reasonable would be a participation to a clinical trial where we can test additional agent or change the agent to target different mechanisms. What we know now is that an mTOR inhibitor like RAS001 had shown in phase 3 setting increased progression-free survival in patients who had prior therapy with the either sunidinib or sorafenib combination. This agent has not been approved yet, but once it's approved, we don't know what kind of label the FDA will give, but would be definitely a Category 1 observation eventually to take in consideration to add this point to switch from an anti-VGF to an mTOR inhibitors after sunidinib treatment. So in considering that we can't access RAD001 right now, do you think it's reasonable to sort of substitute Tempsorolinus? Well, that's the question that a lot of physicians have. Mine and others' approach is that I don't know whether we can make this assumption at this point. I think we need to go by the clinical trial evidence. And, of course, the clinical trials was done with RAD001 was not with Tempsorolinus. So what are the other options you were considering this man? Well, in this patient, for example, it would can it also, if we think about the clinical trials, uh, there are clinical trials ongoing to determine whether another tyrosine kinase inhibitor may be, still be beneficial, like zaxidinib or sorafenib. There is an ongoing clinical trials for patients who have progression disease after sunidinib. We still do not know why if a patient respond initially to a tyrosine kinase inhibitor and then eventually progress where another tyrosine kinase might still have a clinical benefit, but that's been described. And then tell us about the mechanism of resistance. They believe it is mechanism resistant to anti-VGF therapy might not be so determined in a way that there's not only the tumor becoming resistant, but maybe the microenvironment. So switching the tyrosine mechanism may still make sense. There is an ECAG ongoing study, ECAG4805, with the VGF trap, and this is a soluble decoy receptor to bind the VGF. There is some line of evidence suggesting that in patients with tyrosine kinase inhibitors, the level actually of VGF goes up and is increased, and maybe the drug cannot catch up with the level of the ligand, so come up 
on board with an anti-VGF that completely neutralized VGF may still induce clinical benefit. This is an ongoing trial. You mentioned Axetinib. Can you talk about what we know about that agent and also what we know about Pazopinib and sort of what you think they might be in terms of comparison to Sunitinib and Serafinib? Axetinib is also a tyrosine kinase inhibitor with a relatively similar kinase inhibition profile than Sunitinib. The clinical experience has been quite compelling in patients even who had prior tyrosine kinase inhibitors still responded to Axetinib. And the toxicity profile seems to be relatively acceptable with this agent. Similar to sunitinib? That's been the observation that may be more tolerable than sunitinib. Again, there's not been a head-to-head study comparing sunitinib with exidinib. But that's the common thoughts that maybe exidinib may be as potent or even more potent than sunitinib, but probably has less side effect. Pasadomim is also another tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Again, pan-VGF receptor kinase inhibitors with other targets like sunidinib, axidinib, and sorafenib. And that's shown to have a clinical activity primarily in patients who had prior immunotherapy. There is ongoing trials now comparing head-to-head pasalponib versus sunidinib. It's going to be a non-inferiority trial. So the investigator is going to try to make the point that pasalponib is not superior to sunidinib but can be as effective as needed, but maybe less toxic. So we go back on that toxicity issue. And do we have any data right now to support the fact that it might be less toxic? It's unclear. I think in the phase two setting in patients who had prior cytokine therapy, I think Pasabinib had an acceptable toxicity profile. The reason why the company wants to have this non-inferior trial is because believe it probably that indeed it's going to pan out to be less toxic. In terms of fatigue? In terms of fatigue, in terms of gastrointestinal syndrome, for example, or bone marrow suppression. Have you used either one of these agents yourself in clinical trials? I have not participated to either pasatomine or exedinib. So what other options would you be considering for this patient? Again, the mTOR inhibitors, if RAD001 is approved, clinical trials, either VGF-TREP, exedinib, sorafenib, I think immunotherapy at this point would not be a clear option. Even if a patient was a candidate at the beginning with a high-dose interleukin-2, there are some intriguing data suggesting that actually high-dose interleukin-2 might be more toxic in patients who have received prior tyrosine kinase inhibitor or prior anti-VGF therapy. So I would say probably these are really the option right now. What about bevacizumab alone or with interferon? Again, I didn't mention about bevacizumab. As you know, bevacizumab has been primarily developed in the first-line setting and is a category one, according to the NCCA guidelines, in patients who had no prior therapy. We know that sunidinib does have a clinical activity after bevacizumab. This was a small phase two study by Brian Rini and Clinical Clinic. We don't know the opposite, whether a patient benefits actually from bevacizumab after sunidinib. There is no really data on that. Can you review what we do know about bevacizumab and renal cell cancer and what your thoughts are in terms of, for example, how important or not important is the addition of interferon? This is still an ongoing issue, as you know. It's unclear whether interferon alpha will add something to the bevacizumab. Likely the label, if bevacizumab is going to be approved, it's going to be likely approved in combination with interferon alpha. There are some intriguing evidence from the avoidance study from Europe 
that show the progression-free survival advantages of interferon alpha and bevacizumab versus interferon alpha suggested that in those patients where interferon alpha was reduced or even dropped, in those patients the clinical benefit was not lost, suggesting that probably or maybe you really don't need to have interferon alpha on board with bevacizumab. On the other hand, the data with sorafenib and interferonanta suggests that there may be some synergy between immunotherapy and anti-VGF therapy. So I think it's still an ongoing issue. So there's no data at all in terms of the issue of bevacizumab after a TKI? As far as I know, there is no clear evidence on that. Hmm, interesting. The VGF-TRAP study we are running at ECAG hopefully will address that issue with a binder of VGF but it's a VGF-TRAP or bevacizumab after tyrosine kinase inhibitors will have a clinical benefit. This is a randomized study with low-dose versus high-dose VGF-TRAP, and the requirement to participate in this study is actually to have progress after either sorafenib or sunetinib. So right now, assuming, you know, sort of putting aside cost and reimbursement issues, do you think there's a role for bevacizumab in non-protocol therapy of renal cell? I think there is a role, and I think it's going to be interesting to see once bevacizumab is approved for the treatment of kidney cancer, what's going to be its market share. I think it likely will be used in first line, and the perception is maybe, especially if interferon alpha is reduced or even dropped, may have a better toxicity profile as compared to sunidinib. So I think it is going to play a role. As you probably know, there are ongoing study, they will test actually the combination of bevacizumab with either tensirolimus or rad 1 So I think that is a very interesting combination, anti-VGF and mTOR inhibitors that could not have been done with sunidinib. As you know, if we combine sunidinib with either bevacizumab or tensirolimus, there was an increased toxicity that unfortunately led to the discontinuation of this trial. So this combination of bevacizumab actually with tensirolimus or rad 1 are particularly interested. So what happened with the patient? Well, this patient eventually ended up to have sorafenib. And that really has been a common theme to try one tyrosine kinase inhibitor first and then the second tyrosine kinase inhibitors later. So what happened with the sorafenib? He did not have response to sorafenib. So then how was he treated? Well, eventually the patient actually deteriorated and ended up to be in hospice care. One trial that what I just mentioned is actually in combination with the high-dose interleukin-2, we have some interesting preclinical data suggesting that when we combine in histone deacetylase inhibitors in a mouse model of kidney cancer with the high-dose interleukin-2, we can increase the response to high-dose interleukin-2. And we believe that it happened because we suppress a specific T-cells population called regular T-cells. It's like a break to immune response. So we translate these in a clinical trials sponsored through NCI, phase one, phase two, in patients who are eligible for a high-dose interleukin-2, and we're going to add an oral agent, in this case, SNDX275. Any other major randomized trials out there in renal cell cancer that you think docs in practice should know about? One study is the best trial. The ECOG study is a relatively small phase two randomized trial where a different combination of agent, whether it's sorafenib, bevacizumab, sorafenib, tensirolimus, tensirolimus, and bevacizumab, 
are compared to bevacizumab alone. There are um, ongoing trials, as we mentioned, the sunidemib versus pazapanib in the first-line setting, and the combination of mTOR inhibitors with anti-VGF, tensirolimus plus bevacizumab, razir one plus bevacizumab. What about in the adjuvant setting? The adjuvant setting, I'm glad that you brought up this issue. This is a very important question. As you probably know, there is an ongoing adjuvant trial, the Assure trial through ECAG, very important trial, the largest adjuvant trial run in the United States in kidney cancer, excellent accrual, and that will tell us whether early treatment with tyrosine kinase inhibitor, whether it's a sorafenib and sunidinib, will be better than just observation in patients with a high-risk disease. Are you putting patients on that study? Yes. How do you find a patient? Of course, it's placebo control, but I'm guessing you can figure out who's being treated. How do you find people doing as they get out towards a year? Of course, the patient eventually develops a side effect, so they know where they are randomized. In my experience, we involved more than 10 patients of Hopkins so far, and even the patient do the have we randomized likely to either Sorav and Sunidrim, they were able to complete the one-year treatment. But I have to tell you that some patients really had a hard time to complete the one-year treatment. Again, mainly fatigue? Fatigue, diarrhea, hypertension, this has been the biggest one.